A phrase I want to come back to at the end of the message is on the screen. The call of Moses. I've seen the misery of my people, said Yahweh. I've heard them crying out. I'm concerned about their suffering and I will lead them out of Egypt to a good and spacious land. Now go, for I am sending you to the Pharaoh and you will lead my people out. And with that command, Jesus came preaching, saying, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. I've told this story before, but it happened about five years ago. Lori and I decided that we would go see the movie of the Avengers called Infinity War. We'd heard a lot about it from the 20-somethings in the church. And they assured us that if we did not go see it, we would be old and uncool. And so we decided to go see it. And you guys, five minutes in, I was lost. It was loud. It was fast. The graphics were, they were, they were vivid. People were screaming and crushing and saying things. And the people in the theater were just caught up in this. They were groaning. They were talking to one another about something that someone just said. And Lori and I just sat there looking like two teenagers at a Grateful Dead concert. Just going, this went on for two hours. Neither one of us said anything when we got to the car, but... I didn't start it. I just sat behind the wheel and just looked across the parking lot. And Lori sat quiet, looking out the windshield. Neither one of us wanted to say anything because we didn't want to appear to the other old and uncool. And finally, I just said, boy, that popcorn was good. Would you like to go get something more to eat? And Lori said, yeah, maybe I'll understand that. I said, honey, we are old and uncool. Then I learned the next day that that's not true. There's actually 18 different movies in the Avengers series. I had no idea. I thought this was it. (laughs) And so the whole time that people were saying things in this movie in front of me, 
the people in the audience, they were catching the significance of this. They'd seen all these other movies and they were waiting for how the story was gonna end. I thought this was the story. And this was not the story. This was only the latest episode in the story. It was impressive to be sure, but it was not the whole thing. I was appreciating the movie, but I had no idea of the plot. Well, in the season of Epiphany, which is where we're in right now, we're watching a movie called Jesus, and there's a lot of movement, and he's saying significant things about himself, about, about the world, and, and there's some people in our audience that when they hear those things, they're like, oh, wow, that's the answer. They're connecting it with other things that they know earlier in the Bible. But I wonder if a lot of us in the room, maybe you, are just looking at the story of Jesus in itself and you're wondering, how? Oh, yeah, this is impressive, but is this all? And the way that preachers like me feed into that is, we often choose one instance in Jesus's life and then we lift that instance up and then we find some kind of moral connected to that instance. And then we tell our audiences, this is how you all should live. So Jesus, he fed the 5,000. So the moral is you should be more generous. Jesus touched the lepers who were unclean. So you should be more open to people that seem to you unclean. And the audience for a while seems caught up in that particular scene but have you ever come to church and wondered, is there something bigger going on here? Is there a plot that is bigger than Jesus feeding the 5,000 or walking on water or raising the dead or healing the sick? Is there more to the story? Well, it turns out there is. The movie called Jesus in Epiphany actually fits in a plot that is much older, larger, more epic, and cosmic than the one we think about. And I'll just say personally, I for one am ready for a Jesus who is more than just my personal savior. Now, I'm not saying he isn't that. He is that. But this isn't about me. This is about something that is bigger than me. And I have this hunch that if I could find that something, if I could figure out the plot and give myself to a story that is bigger than me, I might find me somewhere in the pursuit of that. Are you there? Well, it turns out that there is a plot. And that plot is exile in Exodus. Some have said that 
exile and exodus is the only thing that ever really happens in the Bible. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is really an exile and an exodus. Some have even said an exile and an exodus is the center point of history. In other words, you have no way of making sense of history apart from the major themes of exile and exodus. Let me define those. Exile is the idea that a people are in bondage. They are alienated. They are cut off. They are turned inward. They have no way of helping themselves. Exodus is the idea that there is a supernatural hand that is drawing them out calling them out of bondage and alienation into something that is bigger than them. Now, we are all familiar with the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. Yes? Yes? Thank you. So... I'm going to tell it anyway. Well, what I mean to say is this, that you're all familiar with how God took Egypt, uh, Israel out of slavery in Egypt, but do you remember how Israel, the people of God, became slaves in the first place? Do you remember that? A long time before Moses ever appeared, there was a clan of people uh, called Jacob's family. Jacob had 12 boys. One of those boys was Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery and went into Egypt. And while Joseph was in Egypt in prison for a crime he did not commit, the Pharaoh of Egypt had a dream. And in his dream, he saw seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And then the skinny cows came over and ate up the fat cows and rattled him. Well, Pharaoh went to sleep the next night and he had another dream. And there were seven healthy fat grains or stalks of grain. And then there were seven other lean, he called them weathered stalks of grain. And the lean and weathered stalks of grain came over and ate up the fat stalks of grain. And at the end of that one, Pharaoh woke up. And the Bible says it troubled him. He was worried about this. The the dream was about not having enough. If you pause for a moment... And try to catch the irony of a man like Pharaoh, who is ensconced in power and privilege, is having a dream about not having enough. So he reaches out to his 
helpers and says, is there anybody in my kingdom who can interpret the dream? And somebody remembers there's this guy, this Hebrew named Joseph. He's in prison, and I hear he can interpret dreams. And so they go get Joseph out of prison. They bring him before the Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Joseph says, the two dreams are actually the same thing. Well, what does it mean? And Joseph says, the seven fat cows represent seven good years of abundance and the seven skinny cows represent seven years of hard famine and the seven fat stalks of grain represent those same seven years of abundance and the seven thin and weathered stalks of grain represent those same seven years of famine and that in, in that the skinny ones have eaten up the fat ones means that the years of famine are going to be so great that they will eliminate all of the abundance. You won't even remember the years of abundance in the middle of those seven years of famine. And the fact that you had two dreams instead of one says Joseph, only means that the matter is firmly decided in God's mind and he will do it quickly. Pharaoh says, what do we do? Joseph says, well, if I were you, I would start a department of agriculture and you would take 20% of all of the abundance in those first seven years, and you would store that abundance. Now, these are the words in the text. You would store the abundance, quote, under the authority of the Pharaoh in cities to be used for food. Pharaoh says, that's a good idea. Why don't we make you the head of the Department of Agriculture? Joseph is promptly appointed, and the years of abundance begin. As the harvest comes in, the Pharaoh takes 20%. He stores it in cities under his authority, and he waits for the years of famine. The plan is working beautifully. But it has drastic consequences. In the first year of famine, the people of Egypt have burned through all of their food. They have nothing left. And so they come to the Pharaoh and they exchange their money for food. And the Pharaoh accepts the offer. The second year, the famine is even worse. And the people of Egypt come back to the Pharaoh. And now because they have no money, they trade their cattle. That is their means, their livelihoods for food. The Pharaoh takes the cattle and gives them the food. In the third year, the famine is even worse 
And this time they come back, and in their own words, they said, take our land and take we ourselves. We will be your slaves. Only give us grain so that we may live and not die. The Pharaoh accepts the offer. Does anybody realize that by the time you get to the end of Genesis, it's not that the Hebrews are slaves, it's that everybody is a slave. There has been a vast and steady migration of wealth and power away from the citizenry towards the Pharaoh. Joseph may not have wanted this, but it happened. And for a while, the people of God lived well in these conditions. The same Pharaoh who confiscated money, wealth, and land said to the people of God, I will let you live in the best parts of the land. But as always happens, the Pharaoh dies and a new Pharaoh comes to power. Are you with me so far? I need to stop at this point and remind you of something you may know or not, that the Pharaoh, as the Egyptians called him, was not just a guy. It was an entire administration. The Pharaoh literally means in Egypt, the big house. And so when the Old Testament speaks of the Pharaoh, it is talking not only of a man with a lot of power, it's talking about an entire system, administration with values and with traditions and laws that reinforce that power. When somebody talks about the White House in the United States, we think not only of Joe Biden, we think of the entire administration, don't we? When we hear, well, the White House has issued a statement, they don't mean Joe Biden sent an email. They mean somebody in the organization, in the system, has released an email. The Pharaoh works kind of that way. But because the Pharaoh is also a man, he is a man with power who shapes a system just like the system creates the Pharaoh. You're quiet. I can't tell whether you're talking, thinking. Anybody who has led anything larger than your family knows that a person who has power over an organization can never just do what they want. They can, own, <laughs> they can only do 
within the parameters of what that organization will allow. They don't care who you are. You can't just grab a country or a nation or an organization and say, now we're all going to go do something else. They will spit you out so fast. You can shape it. You can shape it. But remember, the reason you're in power is because the organization values who you already are. So in that way, the leader shapes the system and the system reinforces the leader. You say, well, why are you drilling this home? Because it means that the problem in Exodus is not just a head of state who sits there stubborn. It's an entire system that reinforces a man who sits there stubborn. This explains why the Pharaoh would have conversations with two midwives that a head of state would ordinarily not have. It explains why the Pharaoh would have multiple conversations with Moses even while Moses was a fugitive. That would never happen. It explains why God would harden the Pharaoh's heart simply by describing a system that had become so enclosed upon itself, so complex and interwoven that it was impermeable to outside voices. It isn't just the man that you have a problem with. It's the thing itself. The whole culture. So when a new pharaoh comes to power, there's a new administration with new values and new traditions and new beliefs about the way things work in this world. And when that happens, because this always happens, the people who were once favored are suddenly the culprits. The Pharaoh, the system decides that there is a certain demographic in the empire that are growing too quickly in numbers. We must do something about this. We must oppress them with hard labor, says the Pharaoh. We must work them ruthlessly, says the Pharaoh. We must make them slaves, the Pharaoh says. Because if we don't, this demographic of people, um, and it's, why don't we just say it? The only thing the Hebrews did in Exodus chapter 1 was have too many children. They didn't do any, we have no record of them doing anything personally wrong to the Pharaoh. They just had too many kids. And the irony of this is that a man like the Pharaoh with all of this power is suddenly 
paranoid that he is going to lose some of the power that he has. And because he's afraid of losing power, he makes stupid decisions that actually unseat his power. It always happens. Afraid of losing power, afraid of losing control, we make decisions that cause us to lose control. So he goes to the physicians of his day and he says, if a child is born to the Hebrews and it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. Six verses later in chapter 1 verse 22, he says it again. If it's a boy that is born to the Hebrews, throw it into the Nile River. And the Nile was one of Egypt's gods. It was a goddess of life. So the Pharaoh says, if it's a Hebrew boy, give it up to the gods. But if it's a girl, let it live. I got to catch my breath for a minute. Because if the Pharaoh is not just a man, but a machine, you got to ask yourself, what kind of power takes advantage of a crisis like a famine and then uses its own possessions, whether food or health, giving it to its own citizens for the purpose of getting more power itself. What kind of power creates and then endorses a vast migration of wealth away from the public and toward the ruling class? What kind of power terrorizes its people even while it is afraid of them? What kind of person thinks about its own survival instead of the survival of its people? What kind of power decides who will live and who will die and then convinces the entire population to participate In this madness, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, you let it live. Am I the only person who looks at what has happened to the Pharaoh, the concentration of wealth and power with massive overreach into his empire, controlling virtually everything, including life itself, while he shrivels in the paranoia that he might lose a little? Am I the only person in the room that is rattled by that kind of power?
20 years ago, we stood outside, Lori and I, the Yad Vashem in Israel. You walk through the museum and you hear the names of six, six million Jews. One and a half million of them were children. It's a museum dedicated to the children of the Holocaust that lost their lives because of a pharaoh who decided that there was one demographic in his kingdom that was less valuable than another demographic. He was afraid of losing power, yet he had immense power. And I remember walking through that museum uh, until you get almost out of it, and you're just overwhelmed with grief and sadness and despair and rage. The rage is just ripping through your veins. I felt that again this week as I got to the end of... um, Exodus chapter 1, imagining the countless families who had their children taken from their hands simply because they were the wrong race and the wrong gender, sacrificed to the God of Pharaoh. All right. Here comes the good news. The Pharaoh ain't the only one working in Exodus. There is a God who is standing in the shadows. And while the tyrants are calling the shots, God is implementing his own quiet, subtle plan to unseat the power of the Pharaoh. When the Pharaoh decides that he will put them into slavery, Yahweh decides that they will multiply even faster. When the Pharaoh decides that he will throw the boys into the Nile, Yahweh decides that there will be two Egyptian women who conscientiously object and refuse to sacrifice the Hebrew boys. When Pharaoh orders that you will throw all Hebrews into the Nile, God will orchestrate a plan to take one Hebrew boy out of the Nile. I agree. When chapter 2 begins... There is a Hebrew woman that has a, 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 a boy she does not name. She hides the boy for three months, and when she can hide him no longer, she goes out and finds a little basket. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the Hebrew word for basket there is ark. Ark. 
The only other time the word appears in the Old Testament is in the story of Noah. The woman goes out and she finds an ark and she puts that boy in the ark and sets it in the Nile that starts to float away. She steps away to watch to see what's going to happen. About that same time, a princess surrounded in the power of the Pharaoh decides to come and bathe. Bert Visotsky said in order to bathe, she would have had to have disrobed herself from the vestments of privilege. She would have gone down into the river and in a private act, her attendants would have turned their backs so she had the moment alone while she is in the river naked with no vestments of privilege. She notices an ark. She walks over. She orders a servant girl to fetch the ark. The servant girl opens the ark. The baby starts to cry. And the woman from Pharaoh's Egypt says, look, it's a Hebrew child. And in one of those moments in history that turn on a dime the next phrase in the scripture says and she felt sorry for it nobody reading this is expecting that they're expecting her to say look this is a hebrew baby kill it like my daddy said but instead she feels sorry for it And you start thinking to yourself, mm, something going to happen. About that time, the baby's own sister watching this comes over and says to the princess, would you like me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse this child until it's weaned? The princess says, go do that. In fact, you tell that Hebrew woman, I'll pay her to do that. Oh. Now you got Pharaoh paying for his own undoing. Are you feeling like something's going to happen here? The child grows to be three or four years old, fully paid for, by the man he will take down. And when the princess comes back to claim the child and make the child a son of the Pharaoh, she names the boy Moshe, Moses, which means drawing out. <laughs> Yahweh has just showed his hand. He has just revealed how he's going to undo the Pharaoh. He isn't going to crush him. He's going to draw his people out. He's not going to overpower Pharaoh with Pharaoh's kind of power. He's going to create something new inside of Egypt, right under the Pharaoh's nose, that is so attractive as a community, he will just call people 
into the new thing. He will not have to crush the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh will die of natural causes. <laughs> the next scene is a picture of Moses using Pharaoh's power. I stood outside the Yad Vashem with Lori that day, and I'm not proud of it. I say it only because it, it describes the Pharaoh's power. Lori said, while I collected myself, she said, are you all right? I said, what all guys say, fine. She's just said, man, I'm glad that guy is gone. I said, I'm not. I wish he was here so I could have the privilege of killing him myself. I'm not proud of it, but I meant it. I was so filled with rage at the injustice that I believe if that guy would have appeared, I would have torn him limb from limb and then got on the bus and felt like I had done humanity a service. I say that because that is exactly what Moses does. He goes out into the field. He sees a Hebrew getting beat by a slave master who is Egyptian. Moses, realizing that this is one of his people that is being beaten, looks around to make sure nobody is watching. Now I'm adding to the text, but I can't imagine it happened some other way. He found himself a good-sized rock. He went up behind the slave master when no one was looking, and he hit him in the back of the head. He knocked him unconscious. He then jumped on top of him, and he just kept going until he finished him off. Then he got nervous, so he dug the sand, buried his body in the sand, and went home. The next day when he came back to the job site, two Hebrews were now fighting amongst themselves. And Moses, the deliverer, the one who ends violence by causing violence, says to them, why are you striking each other? And one says to him, who made you ruler over us? Are you going to kill me like you did that Egyptian Moses, realizing that he's been found out, runs into hiding as a fugitive, and the Pharaoh puts a bounty out on him and tells his administration to find him and kill him because that is what Pharaoh always does. In chapter 3, the next time 
Moses appears. He is on the backside of a mountain and he hears a voice coming out from a bush that's on fire and it's the voice of Yahweh calling for another kind of exodus. Yahweh is going to lead his people out, but he will not do it by putting things down. He will do it by calling people out. He will draw people out of the culture of death and into a culture of life. Do you understand, church? This is a fundamentally different way of changing the world. It is not about overpowering your enemies. It is about living in attractive and consistent alternative to the way of your enemies until they are converted themselves. It's a fundamentally different way. The people of God do not and have never won battles with military power, with physical brutality, or with militant elections. That's not how we save the world. That's not our story. Our story is not a putting down. It's a drawing out. Live a faithful, consistent alternative and they will find us. That is why the phrase I put at the beginning of the sermon was so critical to the story where Yahweh says to Moses, I have heard my people. I'm concerned about their suffering and I will lead them out of bondage to a good and spacious land. Now go. I am sending you, wait for it, to the Pharaoh. I'm sending you, man or woman of God, to go up to the Pharaoh with a better idea. These people who follow Moses are a community that is very different from the Pharaoh. They do not usurp power onto themselves. They give power away. They do not confiscate people's wealth. They give their money to those who cannot pay them back. They do not crush their enemies. They pray for their enemies. They do not decide the value of a person based on their race. They become hospitable to outsiders. How did Moses put it? Because you know that you too were once slaves in Egypt. You can't forget that when you are a person who follows a Moses. And they do not decide who lives and who dies They are a culture of life. They open themselves and they open their circles, especially to the least of these, and they give them life. These are the people that Moses is called to lead. And by the way, you do it 
in the midst of Egypt. It is not first exile and then exodus. It is exile and also exodus. God is calling you out even as you remain strangers and aliens in a culture that is very different from you. Now you know why when Jesus came preaching, he said, the time has finally come. The kingdom of heaven, it's a, it's a phrase he gave to Moses' alternative world. The kingdom of heaven is upon you. Repent, turn, and believe the good news. God is calling you out even as you remain. So you are a chosen people. I told the first hour, if I were the devil, I'm not. And I could not get you, I could not keep you from being chosen, and I can't. Then I would keep you from knowing it. Because if you were chosen and you didn't know it, you'd act like somebody else. And the person you acted like would be less than the one who is chosen. So it's not completely up to whether or not it's true. It's up to whether or not you believe it and you live into that reality. Now hear it again. You are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people belonging to Yahweh so that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of bondage and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but today you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but today you have received mercy. So I urge you as aliens and strangers in Pharaoh's world to live such honorable lives among them so that even though they accuse you of doing what is evil, they will see your good works and they'll glorify God on the day he shows up. Let the church say amen. Stand to your feet. From the words of our brother, St. Paul, come out from among them and be separate says 
the Lord. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your worship. And do not conform any longer to the patterns of the Pharaoh, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so you will be able to test and approve God's will for you. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, fervent in prayer. Share with those who have need. Practice hospitality. Bless the ones who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But live in harmony with one another and do not be proud, but be willing to associate with one another, especially with people in low positions, and do not take revenge. Do not repay evil with evil, for you belong to God and not to the Pharaoh, and do not be overcome with evil, but in love, in the name of Christ, overcome evil with good." Dear God, call us out. Make another nation inside of the one we have that is filled with holy and blameless people who love nothing but Christ, fear nothing but sin and change this world.